0: Expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT.
1: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio is Gavin Phipps. Gavin, good evening. Good evening. And from the greater Kaohsiung area, we're joined by ICRT correspondent Michael Smith. Michael, how are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me on. Well, uh, this is the very first edition of the show, and uh, it seems like we chose the right week to start. Awful lot going on in Taiwan, from the anniversary of the Sunflower Movement to uh, pretty massive criticism facing the Qi Foundation. Uh, but we're going to start things off this evening with drought. There's a major water shortage facing the island, and yesterday, you know, with no signs of letting up, the government has announced that it's planning to put in place phase three Water rationing. That's to take effect in New Taipei City's Linko, Banqiao, and Xinjiang districts, and in Taoyuan starting April 1st. It sounds like uh, a pretty bad April Fool's joke, but it's not. Uh, What is this going to mean? What is Phase 3 water rationing going to mean for residents?
2: Right, well, it means that water will be supplied to the areas in question only five days a week on a rotating basis. And sadly, this could affect more than a million households in the four areas, as well as industrial users. And of course, this is all based on concern about hugely declining water levels in the Shimen Reservoir, which is located in Taoyuan County, and supplies the Taipei areas of Lingkou, Banqiao, Xinjuang, as well as, of course, Taoyuan itself. And then, of course, there have been reports that the reservoir only has 32 days' water supply left, which is rather frightening, really.
1: Yeah, kind of uh, living on the edge there. Uh, Michael, what about down
0: south? What are- What are residents down there going to expect? Well, it's actually a bit of a mixed bag down here because uh, in the Taichung area, yesterday reports came in saying that we had about 53 days left of water there. But then when you get down to Tainan, the reservoir is still about 67 percent full, so they're not quite as bad. Pingdong's about 43%, the report said. And Kaohsiung, they said, has about 165 days left of water. So the urgency is not the same down here as it is up there. There are billboards at bus stations across Kaohsiung asking people to conserve water and the rest. But to be honest, it hasn't really affected the average person yet. And uh, until it does, I don't think we're going to see much uh, change down here in water usage. You know, when it it hits home, that's when the, the situation starts to change. But the government did come up with a really good idea that I uh, hope they implement, and that is if you save 30 percent of water compared to the same amount you used last year at this time, they'll give you a big discount on your water bill. So these are the sort of incentives that we perhaps need to begin implementing to get people to actually save water and take this seriously.
1: Now, staying on that note of uh, what the government response has been. Now, originally uh, they were hoping to put off these uh, rationing measures until May 1st. They've moved up the date. the The situation, the drought situation, hasn't improved. The government is clearly trying to figure out how they're going to respond to this. Uh, what What have they said they're going to do so far, Gavin?
2: Well, of course, they're cutting back on water to industry. But they're cutting back. Industrial consumers will start um, losing 10% of their water supply in the north part of the country, of course. And that'll affect some 1,300 industrial consumers. And they've already seen 7.5% decreases in their water over the past couple of months. And I believe there's also been cutbacks in Shinzhu, Taichung, Tainan, and Kaohsiung, as well as, as well as northern parts of Zhenghua County. And they could be cut back from 5% to 7.5%. And uh, Michael, uh, down south, what what are you hearing about down there?
0: Also, the same as what Gavin mentioned, uh, mostly industrial users, but also some larger farms are also being affected. But uh, as I said, the average consumer is just not quite feeling the bite yet, but uh, that could change very soon. Now, putting aside
1: those more short-term measures for a second... Uh, earlier this week, ICRT spoke with one water expert who says these measures don't actually address the more basic problems facing Taiwan. Uh, in fact, former Interior Minister Li Yuan, who uh, now serves as a professor at NTU's Hydrotech Research Institute, says that water supply problems in Taiwan are getting more severe every year.
3: Maybe you can solve problems for one time. But I have to emphasize that in, in the past, every 17 years, we used to have a severe drought. But now every nine years, we have a severe drought. So I would say we are facing the drought situation more frequently. And I keep telling my colleagues that we have to face this once and for all.
1: He says the real issue is that water is too cheap in Taiwan.
3: Because our water price is so cheap that no businessman wants to invest for water saving. So our water saving industry can never become an industry. So we should increase the water price. We take care of the, the domestic use, and then we generate our water-saving uh, industry and making generate some revenue out of that and solve our crisis.
1: So another long-term problem that the island is facing is, you know, there's pretty serious issues
2: with the reservoirs that we depend on. Is that right, Gavin? Yes, I mean, they suffer from huge siltation, I believe is the word. That's basically muck and stuff that gets on the bottom of them, and then they, sh- they shrink in size, of course, because they fill up from the bottom, so you can get less water in them. So, of course, they do need to unsilt the reservoirs to ensure that they can contain more water. Of course, that's one issue. And then there's the issue of piping, of course, in the cities. Well, there's been big questions about the quality of the water pipes used by people to put water in their apartments. Because, of course, the water pipes do need a huge makeover, which will have cost lots of money. And the point of raising water prices for average Joe Blow would go towards fixing the pipes. And, of course, that affects
1: uh, the efficiency of water usage, because the worse the pipes, the more water we're wasting. All right, well, uh, certainly an issue that we're going to be dealing with and looking at uh, for the weeks and months to come. Now, leaving behind Taiwan's drought woes and on to a look at the Sunflower Movement, one year on. This week marked the one-year anniversary of the beginning of that movement that saw protesters storm the Legislative Yuan, building in protest over a trade-in services agreement with China. Now, on Wednesday, several hundred demonstrators from an array of civic groups marched around the perimeter of the building, uh, signaling that, you know, this is something that activists are still pressing for. They're still pressing the demands for increased government accountability, uh, but still definitely didn't see the same number of activists that we saw last year. uh, Raising the question is this movement still as powerful as it was before? Is it losing steam? Uh, Now, Gavin, earlier this week, you had a chance to speak with J. Michael Cole of the Thinking Taiwan Foundation. Uh, He's one of the first Western journalists to give in-depth coverage to this movement from their very beginnings all the way up to now. Uh, What was his
2: take on whether or not the energy behind these groups is spent Yes, well, Cole did acknowledge that the group is more divided than before, largely because there's been so little legislative movement on any of the issues that they care about. So there's simply nothing to protest about at the moment. But he does say that the group has built a strong foundation, which had before the occupation, and they are here to stay.
4: There's definitely a lasting legacy from the sunflower movement. Uh, While well, it came together after two years and a half of other uh, civic activism, and uh, they 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 learn to work together. They learn the techniques that work. They learn those that do not work. And in many ways, the sunflower occupation last year was the culmination of all those those events. And they did say when they left the legislature on April ten that they would back and they would be back and they would take action again if the government did not uh, meet their demands at some point or try to pass the agreements without having met those uh, those demands. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that these people are committed. Uh, they've been rather quiet in recent months, but doesn't mean they've not been doing anything. They have been recruiting people. They have been uh, giving lectures all over Taiwan. Uh, so basically, they're building their army, if you will, and if necessary, uh, those people will be called upon and they would take action again. So there's no doubt in my mind that if the government does something crazy, uh, these people will be back.
1: All right. So that was J. Michael Cole. Sounds like his take on it is that, uh, you know, there is still a lot of energy there, Uh, at least up north. What's it looking like down south uh, to you, Michael?
0: Well, actually, Keith, uh, quite a few of the students who were involved in the sunflower movement, including people who were actually inside and occupying the legislative u n did come from other cities in Taiwan. They bust up and they joined the protests either at the beginning or as the uh, the protests swelled so there 's definitely a great deal of interest in Southern Taiwan in this, and as it 's well known, Southern Taiwan is a stronghold of the opposition DPP. And many of the issues that are involved in the trade deals with Taiwan, with China rather, are issues that the DPP is interested in talking about. I had a chance to speak to some young local people just while they were hanging out in front of a department store in Kaohsiung. And they pretty much told me that they thought that the sunflower movement marked the beginning of a brand new era in Taiwan where civic groups have demonstrated that they have the power to actually make people sit up and pay attention to things. As Gavin noted, however, there's been little progress on any of the issues that they've where uh, they were protesting against. The legislative UN has been stuck in basic uh, uh, gridlock since that time. So yeah, um, there's a great deal of interest here, but I'm going to have to say that probably we won't see much movement on anything until after the upcoming presidential election in 2016. Right, and kind of building on that point that you were just making, one thing
1: that has seen no progress uh, is this kind of oversight legislation that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, That is legislation that would oversee Taiwan China deals and give the legislature and the people some kind of authority to have influence over those deals. Now, some kind of cross-strait oversight legislation was a key demand of protesters while they were occupying the Legislative UN, and the government. Promising to pass something like that is what ultimately ended the occupation. Uh, of course, since that time, though, we really haven't seen anything. It's been bogged up in the legislature. This week, though, uh, the government has been pushing their version of a law that they say would do what the protesters are asking for. Uh, so, Gavin, can you tell us about what the government was saying this week?
2: Well, he made a couple of pushes. The Premier, Premier Mao Guo, called for lawmakers to act on the bill as soon as possible. Of course, the bill we're talking about is the government's bill, which, of course, the opposition and several civic groups are really against because, of course, there's been a total of 15 China or called oversight bills, given to lawmakers since last year, but the government is sticking with its bill. And in a rather interesting twist, the head of the Mainland Affairs Council, Andrew Shah, took to YouTube to promote the government's policy, which was, you know, he he branched out to obviously reach the people that the government feels are involved in these civic groups in a rather different way for the government to, to do things, taking to YouTube.
1: But from what I've heard, at least, uh, still many of these protesters are not very open to these proposals. They don't feel like it's going to give the kind of transparency that they're looking for and the oversight for these laws uh, that they want.
2: No, of course, that again, like I said, there's been more than one bill proposed, but the government is sticking with their bill. If if I can uh, chime in here real quick,
0: uh, another interesting element is that uh, many of the people that I spoke to also reiterated what some of the sunflower protesters were asking for as well. They also want to see the voting age lowered to 18 instead of 20 so that more young people will participate in the nation's political affairs. And also in the past week, we had a a group, a civic group, come out and condemn the government for putting the presidential election date on January 16th, 2016, because that falls just a few days before a major exam for a lot of college students. So if anything, we can say that at least we have uh, begun to see many more young people take part in discussions about politics in Taiwan, no matter which side they happen to uh, um, support. So
1: the Sunflower Movement, one year on, uh, certainly still leaving ripples in its wake. Next up, we're going to have to move on to uh, Taiwan's biggest charity organization, which has found itself at the center of a series of controversies this week. The Buddhist Compassion Relief Chi Foundation, that is. Uh, It has long been known for its global humanitarian work in diverse fields from education to medicine. But it's facing growing criticism after it backed away earlier this week from a proposed development project in Nehu that's faced controversy for more than a decade. Now, that announcement came earlier this week. Since then, Taiwanese media has been swirling with accusations on a lot of other fronts, including uh, the foundation's overseas investments, questionable land acquisitions, uh, and alleged attempts to quash bad press. But uh, let's start with that Nehu development project. Uh, Gavin, let, tell us how this controversy got started.
2: Well, it was actually a plot of land in Taipei's Neihu district that was allocated as sort of wild land you couldn't build on it there was banning on it it was a, a plot a of land that was basically not allowed to be built on and the foundation of course came along and said we're going to build a, a hospital here which environmentalists were outraged about and saying hey you can't build here it's a on the side of a mountain and b it's protected not only that gavin it's actually a former pond it's a
0: reclaimed pond that was illegally reclaimed very close to the dahu park And ecologically, it's simply uh, not a very safe place to build anything at all.
2: Right. But their argument, of course, was it was a hospital. And one of the interesting things that came out about this was Buddhist master Shi Chao Hui who described the people that opposed the building of the hospital as environmental fascists, which I found quite amusing, actually. There's
1: uh, There's been a lot of nasty pushback back and forth, uh, some of it coming from Buddhist nuns and Buddhist priests, so that's been something to look at. Now, this is something that goes back really far. I mean, this is a... Uh, the residents of that area passed a referendum on it back in 1998, where they overwhelmingly said, we don't want this here. Uh, why is this something that just emerged in the last week? How how did this build up like it did?
2: Well, because the Taipei mayor, the current Taipei mayor, Kerwin Zhe, finally acted on it. Of course, because before it was De Ma Ying Zhou and then it was Hao Long Bing. Neither of them, they put it aside, they sort of swept it under the carpet. And didn't do anything about it. And, of course, Mayor Kerr has come out with lots of policies to crack down on certain things like rooftop buildings, etc., to do with urban renewal. And this, of course, came up as one of the things that his government was looking into, which was no doubt a bit of an embarrassment for the Tseqi Foundation, all in all, because it's led to more embarrassment, of course, for them.
0: And if I can again chime in here, the uh, ripples are going further than uh, just the Tseqi movement or, or group itself. Uh, As you well know, the majority religion in Taiwan is sort of a hybrid folk religion of Taoism and Buddhism. And according to a report filed just yesterday, there are 11,000 different registered organizations in the Buddhist Taoist tradition that... Uh, And that doesn't mean there's just 11,000 temples. There's probably a lot more than that. But these are registered organizations in Taiwan, and each of them is required every six months to sort of file a very simple financial statement of how much they brought in or whatever else. But most of the people that were asked about money, uh, the abbots that run the the temples or the organizers of the uh, place – said that they don't really have to specify too clearly where the money came from, where they did with it. And parishioners or worshippers themselves, when they come in and they donate to these groups, they also have told the media that they have no idea where the funds go. And a lot of them don't seem all that concerned with it. But because of the Zixi issue, the spotlight is now being shown on a bunch of other large temples as well, all across the island, including down here in the south.
2: And of course, the Zixi Foundation has been accused of making investments in rather un-Buddhist areas, such as the tobacco, the gambling, the defence and the alcohol industries. And, of course, that supposedly happened in the United States with the foundation saying, hey, that happened in the United States. What happens in the United States stays in the United <laughs> States, so to speak. Well, um, also
1: saying that it's being managed by fund managers over there too. In the United in States. In the United yes. States, yes.
0: Yeah, and it's, it, it's, kind, of, um, uh, it's kind of sad because Siji had a, a stellar reputation for such a long time. They were seen as, as you know untouchable in a way, and they were the ones who were on the scene uh, when I myself was in Kobe during the earthquake in 1995. They were one of the first relief groups to be on the ground. And donating stuff. So, for many people that I spoke to here in the south, the fact that they are now being uh, shown to perhaps be yet uh, a little bit uh, shadier than uh, they had uh, once believed is, is is making a lot of people just feel you know disappointed and and sad that, that that this is happening. Right, and that might actually be the
1: biggest fallout of all of this is changing perception of one of you know Taiwan's premier charity groups. Uh, So moving on to our last story today uh, with a possible, some might say unlikely, but possible trip from exiled Tibetan spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama. He said earlier this week that he would be very happy to visit Taiwan. Uh, He made those comments while meeting a group of visitors from Taiwan who told him that some Taiwanese civic groups have launched a petition to invite him to the island. Uh, Gavin, tell us about that petition.
2: Apparently 50 civic groups have launched this petition and they're looking to invite the Dalai Lama to Taiwan in July. And the trip just happens to coincide with his 80th birthday. But of course the Dalai Lama has said that, um, well, maybe you should be a bit realistic because it might not happen.
0: He has been to Taiwan three times previously, 1997, 2001, and 2009, when he came to pray for the victims of uh, Typhoon Morakot. But there was the time after that when he was invited, perhaps uh, technically invited, but the government in the end withdrew that and he did not uh, come to Taiwan. So he hasn't been here since 2009.
1: Right, and so this kind of raises a question that I wanted to put to both of you. Since he was just here in 2009, uh, why why is this something that is... uh, in so
2: much doubt now what's changed since then well it was rejected i believe the fourth trip was in 2012 i believe when he was rejected and of course in 2012 the ma government was beginning to make major progress we'll have to call it with china signing accords agreements on various things and of course i guess that ma administration didn't want to sort of irk beijing with that one and uh this time around dpp
0: chairwoman tai wen was uh, cited in the media as being the one who had asked one of her subordinates to go to India and invite the Dalai Lama to Taiwan. However, she has denied that she was the one who specifically did this. And as Gavin pointed out, it seems to be more of a coalition of civic groups, although one of the DPP's uh, spokespeople did Allegedly, meet with the Dalai Lama in uh, the Indian city that he uh, resides in.
2: Of course, the premier did come out and say that he, the Dalai, he didn't, the premier didn't say no this week. Yeah,
0: he said the visit must benefit the nation as a whole. And when he said that, all of the opposition lawmakers immediately uh, jumped on him, saying, Which nation are you talking about and what kind of benefit are you talking about? And uh, it didn't go over very well.
1: Well, still just a very tentative invitation, but already people are getting angry about it. Uh, But who knows? It could still happen. We'll have to wait and see. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for today. Uh, This is the first installment of the program, but we're hoping to make it a regular thing. Let us know what you think on the Facebook page or our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Mancone, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Gavin, thank you. Yes, good evening. Bye-bye. And Michael Smith. Michael, thank you as well. Thank you. And thank you for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.